Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Bread Podcast. I am here today with Hal Press, the founder of North Rock Digital, a crypto-focused hedge fund. Thanks so much for coming on, Hal. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me on, David. I'm, I'm doing well. So we're recording this, just so everyone knows, on a uh, Friday, October the 21st. This will come out uh, early next week. Uh, just this morning, uh, there was a lot of activity in 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 uh, with the Fed, with the Bank of Japan. Uh, I was going to start with macro talk anyways, so I don't know if you wanted to talk about your thoughts on everything that's happening right now. Sure. Yeah, I mean, like coming into this this podcast, I you were asking when to schedule it. I was like, oh, we'll do it Friday afternoon. There'll be yeah. nothing going on. It'll be yeah. very boring. And that'll be a perfect time to record a podcast. And it turns out that uh, central banks had other plans. Um, but it is topical. Um, I do have some views. I would caveat them with saying, in general, I think macro is very hard to predict. And so, and, and I, like even the best macro forecasters aren't very good at it. And I'm certainly not one of the best macro forecasters. So you should definitely take my view with a grain of salt. It is something I think about though. Um, so happy to, to share thoughts. Um, I mean, then there's really sort of two macro discussions. There's the broader risk, like global policy macro. And then there is mm -hmm. the crypto specific has its own macro. Um, and I think right. those, you know, those both are important and they both interact with each other in, in, in meaningful ways. So just to start on sort of the broader macro, I think, you know, we're pretty clearly in a time where central banks around the world are trying to reverse the momentum on basically extremely strong and sticky inflation that they created from all of their easy monetary policy. And they were quite late to sort of do that pivot. And so they're quite behind the eight ball, but they're trying their hardest with the tools that they have to curb that inflation. And I think one of the issues is that it takes a really long time for Fed policy to actually flow through to inflation. So their policy has to impact the economy. And then the economy has to somehow impact prices. And then there's another lag, which is that even after prices move, it takes time for those real world price movements to actually flow through to the official data. So there's all kinds of intermediate steps in the middle where things just take a really long time to flow through, but the Fed is not really willing to back off their tightening until they actually see the proof in the pudding in the official data. So right. they may already have done enough to turn inflation. I mean, I, I would argue they probably have, but they're not going to stop tightening until that they see it come through the other side. So that's, I think, typically how you get to you know, these boom-bust cycles where the Fed always over-tightens and can't achieve a soft landing is because they're responding to lag data um, right. with real-time measures. Um, and then, like, just my high-level view, and this, mind you, has been a very incorrect view, so I'll caveat it by saying that, but my high-level view is basically that Inflation is just a function of supply and demand, like many other things in the market in the world. When you have more demand for goods than supply of them, the prices go up and you have bad inflation. Mm -hmm. And with COVID, we had a kind of a perfect storm for inflation. You had a lot of sort of unprecedented idiosyncratic supply crimps due to the actual pandemic. 
that wrecked supply chains and created working restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, at the same time as supercharged demand from all the easy monetary policy. And so this really kicked off very, very, very strong and sticky inflation. Um, and that's currently what we're dealing with now. However, in my opinion, those conditions have completely reversed. And you now have pretty much all of those supply constraints eased and in a lot of places more than eased because by the very fact that things were so hot over the last two years in certain sectors supply has built up in excess of what it actually needs to be to try to service that demand so in a lot of cases you're really oversupplied now and then at the same time demand is pretty much wrecked like consumer sentiment in in most places is at all-time lows um, consumer net worth is cratering rates are at the highs so you've really flipped that supply demand equation completely. And so my bias has been that should lead to an easing of inflation. And I think one of the things people misunderstand about inflation is inflation is a rate of change measurement. It, we're not discussing whether yeah. prices are going to come back down. They're never coming back down. The question is, are they going to stop going up? Um, right. And I think given that supply demand reversal, personally, my bias has been that they should. Now, obviously, we haven't seen it, and it's taken longer than I'd expect. Um, and there's some quirks in the data that I think I would have benefited from looking into earlier that I've now looked into and understand that kind of makes sense as to why it's taking so long. But I do ultimately think it should still come down. So yeah, there are a stop there. There are a few indicators that kind of show things are slowing down. Like uh, I think container rates is a big one, right? right. It's come down, yeah. I don't know, 80, There's 90%. a lot for sure. Yeah. Container rates, used car prices. Actually, the biggest, you know, the biggest variable in calculation is rent. And mm -hmm. it's, I mean, this is a tricky one, but actual new rents have now peaked and are coming down. So not only have they stopped like super strong inflation, but they're actually deflating. Um, now that's not gonna show up in the data anytime soon because the data looks at continuing rate, um, rental rates. So if you have a rental and you don't go get a new one, your rent is just probably gonna keep stepping up over time to where new rates have have sort of elevated up to, even if those new rates are coming down. And that's kind of the condition that we're in right now is that those continuing rates, which is what the official data is, is tracking, are gonna keep going up for a while. And that's historically why it lags so much, even though the new rental rates are coming down. But eventually if new rental rates keep coming down and continuing rates go up to meet where new rental rates were, then eventually the continuing rates will also come down. And that will be a very deflationary force probably at some point next year. Yeah, that, that gets us into housing. You tweeted a few days ago uh, that you think there will be a housing collapse. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you explain like why you think that? And when you say collapse, like how how bad does that mean? I don't know. And, and I, I mean, I would caveat all of this stuff with saying I'm young. I'm 28 years old. I did not really live, trade, invest through the 08 cycle. So I'm not nearly as equipped to sort of speak on these uh, matters. I have studied them, but I think it's different mm -hmm. when you're there actually in the moment. Um, so I have, again, I have views, but I would caveat them with saying other people's views are probably more informed than mine. However, with that said, if I'm just looking at it objectively, it's just sort of the same thing as just inflation in general. You know, we had a very unique circumstance where <clears throat> housing supply was low and then demand was supercharged by very low rates and COVID stimulus. And so you had massive house price inflation and you saw this all over the place, you know, during mm -hmm. the pandemic, it was not uncommon for people to be like, oh my God, my house value is up 50% in the last year, um, which is obviously not a normal dynamic. And then now you've had entire full reversal of that. 
So you had tons of new supply built. You had all the demand filled, tons of people moved. And then on top of it, now you have rates that went to extremely elevated levels and mortgage rates that are you know, higher than they've been in a very long time. So you went from crimped supply, supercharged demand to excess supply, plummeting demand. And you did this after you reset the prices like way above where they probably should have been in, in these very dislocated um, environments. So, I mean, the recipe and the, the, the sort of conditions are there for a very drastic sort of decline in housing prices. And I, I think that's probably going to happen. Um, I mean, it is already happening. Like housing prices are already, are already coming down. Um, but I think that's set to accelerate meaningfully. I think you know the, the housing market is probably the place most directly impacted by Fed policy. So you know the, yeah. there's an expression that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. That's true, except in the housing market. In the housing market, it works right. in sort of an incident fashion. Um, and so I think they, they should be more directly impacted and, and impacted more quickly. Um, and so that's why I think that that sector specifically is sort of most at risk. Right. So like the Fed today kind of hinted that once they do this final 75 basis point hike, they're not sure what they're going to do after that. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think they're looking at the most uh, to decide what they're going to do in the next like yeah, I mean, quarter? It's, a, it's, it's actually like, it's a, that's a knowable question. Like they, they will tell you what they're looking at. And just quickly mm -hmm. on the housing point, I think one thing worth noting is that unfortunately, housing prices are not counted in inflation. Um, so even though housing prices may be crashing, it's not going to do anything to inflation. And in fact, the fact that mortgages are so high actually puts some upward pressure on, on rental inflation because it stops people from buying houses and pushes them into the right. rental market. Um, but going on to the question about the Fed, I mean, they've told you basically what they care about is core annualized inflation. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of sort of looking at year over year and headline. So year over year is... It matters in that it's the target, but on a month-to-month -month basis, it's pretty much irrelevant because it's the subject of two things. It's the subject of what was the inflation that period and then what was the comp. But we don't care about the comp. We just care about the current period and what that implies for run rate figures. And then core is also kind of irrelevant because it's largely a product of what energy prices did that month, which are extremely volatile and not reflective of core inflation. So the Fed knows this. And so what they ultimately care about is core month over month inflation. And they want to see that get back to the 0.2 range, which would signify a 2% run rate annualized inflation. Do you think that- and So right now we're running at like 0.6, which is, you know, 8, 7% annualized, which is way too high. And they want to see, basically, right. they want to see 0.6 come down to 0.2 sustainably. Do you think that like something will break before we can get there? Or do you think I mean, that that's the million dollar question? Down? That's like that. That's the question of whether you're bullish or bearish right here is like, do you think something will break? If you think something mm -hmm. will break, you're bearish because you're waiting for the break to, to buy things on the break. If you don't think they'll break, eventually this will resolve and, and we will we will go higher. So that is the million dollar question. I don't know the answer. Ultimately, I can tell you, in my opinion, what will control the answer to that. It all comes down to just how quickly the official inflation data rolls over like that is if you can answer that question like what is the trajectory or what will the curve look like of future month over month cpi core readings you can essentially predict the future of risk markets in my opinion
that's ultimately what matters. And that's the sort of variable that, that then impacts everything else. That's really like the only independent variable and everything else is a dependent variable. Um, honestly, I don't know what's gonna happen with um, core month <laughs> CBI prints. It's gonna depend a lot on how quickly the rental inflation metrics turn down to sort of match the new rental market. And I just don't know if that, if that turns over, you know, in the next couple months, like certainly if the print in two weeks is, is softer and then that's followed by more soft prints after, I don't think anything will break. If it's not, as is very possible, you know, then things might break. And then the longer it's not, the more likely they are to break. Um, and just like to give some context, you know, historically the rental, the official rental inflation in CPI has lagged the more real-time measures by about seven months. And those peaked in March. Um, so you'd expect the sort of CPI measures if they follow historical trends to peak in October, which is literally the next print. So this next print may be one more hot print, or it may be flat to the last one, I'm not sure, or it may be down, there's a lot of variants, but you'd expect if you're modeling it to sort of like that be the high watermark. And hopefully the prints after that should start to moderate. So when there's so much uncertainty like this, obviously you run a fund, how mm. do you think about positioning when you really don't have a strong feeling either way of what's gonna happen? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot with sort of investors and people that I work with. Um, I'm a believer of what I refer to as the 90-10 philosophy. So I think that 90% of your job as an investor is to do nothing, to sit on your hands and yeah. just pass on all medium conviction ideas and opportunities and wait for the truly high conviction 10%. And then when that 10% comes, really take advantage of it and really monetize it appropriately. So, you know, I write investor letters every quarter and so I just wrote one for the September quarter end. And in the investor letter, I said, I think we're now back in the 90%. Like I felt like the merge was a very actionable catalyst that fell in that 10% category. Mm -hmm. And now that that's over and macro is so cloudy and I don't see something else idiosyncratic that's as high conviction as the merge. I, I really firmly believe that I'm personally in the, in the 90%, like other investors may have things that they're really focused on and high conviction on, and they have an edge on right now, and they might be in their 10%, but I'm in my 90%. And so to answer yeah. your question, you just make everything smaller. So cash is our biggest position. Um, it will probably remain as such. We do flex around like a little bit, but everything is smaller. The goal is really don't lose money more than it is make money in these periods. And then in the 10% period, it's about making the money. Um, but to answer your question, like directly, it's just downsize everything um, and, and, and be an air on the side of caution. Yeah. I mean, I think that's evident just in the volume. You can see most people are just not uh, right. heavily trading right now. And it, it makes sense because why would you trade crypto when macro is so uncertain? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's like so hard to express a macro view through crypto because it has so yeah. many other variables. It's just not really a pure reflection of it. But to be honest with you, neither are equities these days. Equities trade with all kinds of weird technicals that like, yeah. I mean, all markets do. I mean, most markets are pretty broken by the kind of current unprecedented, well, not unprecedented, but unprecedented in the near term, um, tight monetary conditions. Um, on more of a global macro, 
Uh, we talked a lot about the Fed. Obviously, one of the biggest things right now is dollar strength, um, mm -hmm. which for crypto tends to be bad. Um, I was thinking about this recently, and tell me if this is completely stupid or not, but do you think there's a scenario where the dollar just keeps getting stronger versus other global currencies, but then crypto gains strength as well at some point? To be honest with you, I have some views around sort of like the the Fed and, and sort of monetary policy. I'm not very knowledgeable when it comes to currencies. So I could I could try to answer that question, but I don't think it would be worth <laughs> you or your viewers' time. Um, I don't have anything really sophisticated to say about the currency market. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, as far as like, you know, we were talking about Bank of Japan you know, Bank of England doing all these emergency bond buying. Do you think we talked about in the US will something break? Do you think something's going to break in these other countries or maybe it already I think, is? I think if something's going to break, it's going to break there first. And, yeah. you know, that's what we saw with gilts in the UK. Um, so definitely, I think, you know, the US will be the last market to break. So if right. something's going to break, it's, it's very unlikely to be here. I agree. I agree. Okay. Let's move into crypto a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, crypto's in this very interesting spot. Like, obviously, volatility has been pretty dead. Um, do you look at, like, I, I guess we can start with just when you're looking at uh, accumulating, what type mm -hmm. of, like, indicators are you looking at to say, okay, I want to start buying here? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the most central fundamental first principles indicator is activity levels like are more people entering or exiting the space is yeah i've talked about this on other podcasts a, a bit but like i think about everything in terms of flows ultimately flows are what, what drive price and the most sort of structurally important variable in flows is are new people coming into the space or are existing people leaving the space? Um, and that's kind of the, the number one indicator that I look at. And what's interesting is I do, I do, I, I, I spend a lot of time in the ETH ecosystem. I look at other ones too, but I do spend a lot of time there. And one of the measures that like I, I often look at to sort of get a high level sense of activity is gas and sort of how much, how much ETH is being burned. Um, and what's interesting is recently it's kind of surged um, and ETH has gone quite deflationary uh, last couple of weeks. And part of that was driven by this new token Zen, but mm -hmm. more recently it's been driven a lot by a sort of resurgence of some meme coins, which may partially be due to Vitalik tweeting about them, but may also be a bit more sustainable. We'll see. But I do think it's really quite notable that this very small amount of activity is capable of making ETH deflationary for very long periods of time. And what that implies longer term, when you have some actual sustained activity, anything like what we've seen in prior cycles, you know, ETH's going to be extremely deflationary at these levels. And that is very likely to be a very powerful narrative and a very powerful flows dynamic. Um, so it's sort of the jury is out whether this little surge that we're seeing is sustainable, but I think it definitely cements the view that next cycle, if there is to be another activity cycle, and obviously, you know, these things are unknowable, but I would probably bet that there will be at some point, 
um, ETH is going to be a very investable asset during that period. Yeah, and, I, yeah, I so. agree with you. I, I personally, like I was having this debate with some friends a couple of days ago about uh, same thing, seeing how ETH is already deflationary with random little blips of activity. And uh, yeah. I, now some people say that, well, next time a lot of the activity will not be on mainnet. It'll be on L2s and right. scaling solutions. I do agree. I think that next time we will see major L2 adoption, but I still think there will be a ton of mainnet activity personally, but some yeah, people that, think that, that, that's what I think. I mean, I think that you're going to have both. Yeah. I think there's a floor where if it's like gas $5, like people just aren't going to bother going to L2 for that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, if gas goes back to like a hundred dollars, yeah, it'll go to L2, but you'll be deflationary well before then. Yeah. So let's talk about ETH versus Bitcoin a little bit here. I know you have very strong uh, opinions on this. <laughs> um, Obviously, going into the merge, you were, I, I forget exactly your stance. Were you bullish into the merge or what was your stance? So, I mean, yeah, I was very, very, very bullish into the merge. Um, and then, honestly, I wasn't sure what was going to happen after the merge. I was sort of um, conflicted. And so I did take our positions down dramatically into the merge, but I was still holding a small long position into it and i sort of thought that um we might have some follow-through after the merge but i wasn't high conviction on it so i wasn't really really willing to bet a lot on it but i was also not there was part of me that like going into the merge that that was planning to sort of short a lot of the merge trades into the merge when we actually got there because i thought it'd be sell the news but a lot of that sell the news got pulled forward um and we started to correct going into it and I think mm -hmm. that kind of tricked me into thinking that, you know, the sell the news may have been more priced in than it was. And obviously in hindsight, it did because it was very sell the news. Um, and so I was small long going into it, but I, I quickly sort of reversed that and cut all positions post-merge when I realized that it probably was going to be sell the news. So I didn't get hurt too bad on, on the way down. But um, I think it is an interesting lesson that anytime you have these events in crypto, like I am a believer that the merge is a very structurally positive event. And you can see that based in what's happening today with ETH being deflationary, but it doesn't even really matter sort of how bullish you are on the event. If everybody's already positioned for it in advance, it's going to be sell the news. It's just, that's just how it is. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that was a good, good lesson for me to learn there. Um, and, and, um, Bitcoin. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that kind of um, that kind of summarizes how I was positioned into it. And so I had very large ETH BTC positions, like starting in the June, July period, going up to um, the merge, because I, I thought it would be a really strong narrative and a really strong catalyst, fundamental catalyst. And I cut those a lot um, sort of around the merge. And I don't actually have a very big position now. However, long term, when you zoom out, I'm still extremely bullish on ETH BTC. And I'm starting to get more bullish now that ETH has sort of washed out and that it's becoming deflationary. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm still a believer that we're going to have a flipping. Like, I just think that the structural flows are ultimately what matter in the long term and tokenomics are really what matter. And ETH has a net buyer every day. Right now, honestly, it's pretty impressive. It's like 
4,000 ETH is being bought a day, which is almost 30,000 ETH structurally every week that just gets kind of erased from circulation. And that's not the net deflation that I'm referencing. That's just sort of like the ETH fees that get spent. But personally, I don't think any of the, well, or much of the staking rewards are getting sold right now. So I think you can basically assume that most of the fees are just sort of being removed from circulation for now. Um, and Bitcoin just issues new tokens to miners every day and they sell because they have to cover electricity and other costs. And so you have one token that just has a steady structural inflow every single day. And you've got another that has a steady structural outflow every single day. And in my opinion, you know, that's just going to drive the ratio higher over the long term. And, and that's what you've seen with BNB BTC too. Um, and, and BNB is the other sort of deflationary token. And so I think, you know, over time, ETH BTC will look quite similar to um, uh, BNB BTC. Do you think that in the next cycle, uh, like like if you had to put a timeline on, on a flipping angle, what would it be? Would it be the next yeah, cycle? Yeah, it's so hard. Or... It's so hard because, you know, I don't know when the next cycle is going to be. So yeah. I don't know. I'd be surprised personally if within 24 months, I mean, this is like a super arbitrary number, but like just mm -hmm. thinking about it, in approximately two years, I'd be surprised if ETH hadn't flipped Bitcoin. Do you think that it would be in a bull or could it happen in a bear? It could be either. Yeah. It really could be either. What do you think is better? I think it's probably, I think it's probably more likely in a bull. Yeah. Um, but it could be either. I mean, it could be either. It could just be just like, you know, I mean, I think there's some, there's, there's a couple sort of supply headwinds coming for Bitcoin in the next few months between the Gox unlock. And then um, I think an underappreciated one is the, the Bitfinex hack um, BTC coins are going to have to be auctioned off by the US government. And that there's also over a billion dollars of Bitcoin. It's actually, I think, larger than the Gox unlock. Um, both of those are going to have to be absorbed. And then that's just going to be versus steady info for ETH. So I think the next 12 months are like, honestly, and this kind of begs the question as to why I don't have a bigger position on for this, but um, I do think the highest sharp ratio trade you can have in crypto over the next 10, 10, 12 months is long ETH BTC. Interesting. At, at what point do you, do you think it's riskier to go long ETH BTC or just long ETH? Because what if you're uh, right I mean, about that's ETH an being... That's an, that's an easy one. It's definitely riskier to go long ETH. But, okay, uh, let's say ETH goes down to like... I don't, I don't know what you think is going to happen with ETH over like I the mean, next, just like, like by definition, the beta is so much lower on that. So like a beta is a measure of risk. But depends right. how you're defining risk. But I, I guess the, my, my, when I say risk, I mean more... Um, yeah, obviously being naked long is more risky. But I meant more like... I'm pretty confident we're going to have another bull run, right? I, I don't know. We've had bull runs for hundreds of years. I don't know. Personally, I, I'm pretty confident in that. I think people always say, oh, it's over. And then, you know, people in 2019. I haven't been around long enough to really have a sophisticated opinion. I, I Let me put it this way. I sure hope we do. But I'm not. Yeah, I'm not of course. Of course. I'm totally biased, too. But let's let's say, I guess the reason I asked that was because you could be right about ETH ripping its face but then bitcoin does too i don't think there's much of a scenario where in a bull run bitcoin outperforms i really don't see it not outperforms but 
closely performs? Yeah, it depends. It depends what you're after. Like if, if, if you're saying what's the bigger, which one's riskier to achieve a 10 X, like which one has less chance of achieving a 10 X, but that's, that's not a measure of risk. That's the inverse measure of risk. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. I should have framed the question differently. Um, um, yeah, riskier, definitely eat that right. Better bet is you could, you could argue. I mean, I would argue the better bet is ETH BTC. Um, and my ETH position is certainly larger than my ETH BTC position. Both are very small. Um, well, not very, they're, they're reasonably small. But um, yeah. And when I think about it objectively, I think ETH BTC. Do you take any ETH tr- uh, pairs with other uh, L1s? All the time. Yeah. All the time. All the time. Because you could really yeah. just long ETH and sh- short your least favorite l1 and sometimes i do the opposite sometimes eth is the is the short hedge interesting so do you have like rough price targets where you're like i think we may get there and if we do you don't at all not really like i don't i don't trade technicals and levels too much um i think i i think about it like i think if we go back to the lows on eth like 800 yeah i think on the downside there should probably be quite a bit of support at a thousand dollars for ETH. Like it's it's pretty hard for me to envision ETH sustainably staying below a thousand dollars. Cause I just think like who is your distressed seller? Like there's gonna be a lot of demand to soak up between now and then. And then when you get there, there's yeah. gonna be a lot of demand there. Who is your distressed seller to fill all that demand with no structural supply? And the whole time there's gonna be steady accumulators. Like You'd have to have such a sort of draconian scenario to, 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 to do that, except if it's a very, very, very long, slow, drawn out bleed over like many, many months. If we're going to break those levels, I think it's going to take a long time. I'm not confident enough to say we will not break those levels, but I'm confident to say we will not break those levels anytime soon. Um, and then on the upside, it depends really. Like I think as long as we're in this environment, the upside's pretty capped. However, if we get a Fed pivot, which personally I think is more plausible than most just based off of my inflation view. Like I've been starting to pick up from the Fed for a while that they want to pivot. Like they mm-hmm. believe that they've sort of done enough and they don't and their and their risks are more two-sided, but they need the data to cooperate. But as soon as the data cooperates, like you're going to see a change in their tone. Um, and I'm of the opinion that the data could turn sometime soon. And if that happens, I think you open the door for a more sustained move higher and a, and a potentially a sharper move higher, because I think that's a really powerful narrative. And I think there is a lot of sidelined capital because mm-hmm. of how bad the macro environment is that if they get comfortable that we have passed the the trough, that that money will flow in. And I think you've had so much bad sentiment and so much selling now that the the holders that are left are quite resilient and quite strong hands. And so if you do have those inflows that that, that are more sustained, I think it's gonna take like significantly higher prices to to fill all that demand, but that requires a, 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 real and significant turn in the data, 
which we just haven't seen to date, but it's something that I'm watching very closely for. And I've talked about that a lot. Like, I think ultimately that's the most important thing. And if you want, if you want to see a sustainable rally, it needs to be built off the data, not short covering technical squeezes. Um, and so that's really what I'm watching for. And you mentioned flows with crypto. Obviously, you mentioned ETH gas prices as one. Are there other flow metrics that you look at? Yeah, I mean, I just look at a lot of these social metrics of like search trends for common crypto um, like keywords, um, look at daily active users, look at NFT activity, um, you know, that kind of thing. Got you. How, how obviously like, it's hard to tell sometimes when it's just a blip versus like going to be sustained Very growth. Hard. Uh, is there anything that you just, that you look at to see, is this more sustained versus just a, a blip? I mean, I think you just have to watch, you sort of like, you've got to watch the trends honestly. And you got to not get false hope like every time there's a little upturn. Yeah, you have yeah. to like see it maintain for a month. And you have yeah. to really question like, is this sustainable? Like right now, this is a good example. Like we're having this like meme coin um, kind of bounce in activity. Yeah. You could convince yourself like, oh, look, it's going deflationary. Like we bottomed. Like, like this is like, the, this was the trough. I think it's probably naive. I think more likely than not, this blip, this this upturn will turn out to be a blip. Meme coin activity will subside, um, and this will not turn out to be a sustained bottom in activity. Like, but that, and that just comes from sort of like objectively assessing the situation. Like, what's going on? People are speculating on random meme coins because Vitalik's tweeting about them. Is that a dynamic that's likely to yeah. sustain longer term? Like, probably not. Um, there are other things that I think could could help. Like I think the midterms could be a bullish catalyst in, in the short term. I think it's going to likely be bullish for the broader risk markets. And then it has an extra idiosyncratic attraction for equity. I mean, for crypto, because it should signal slightly more favorable. Um, it should signal slightly more favorable um, regulatory trends. Um, and then, so, so that should be good. And then there's the World Cup coming, um, which, you know, should give these fan yeah. tokens some I saw some you tweet about chilies. Do you have any? Yeah, so chilies is something that? that I'm newer to. Um, it's not a big position. Like I said, everything, you know, that we do in this period is like kind of smaller, but we do have, um, we do own, uh, we do own a position. Um, I think basically they're, they're essentially a platform for launching fan tokens. Um, and the thesis is just that the World Cup is the largest sporting event in the world um, mm -hmm. and it gets a ton of eyeballs and a ton of engagement. And so if there's two strong teams with fan tokens during the World Cup that are getting engagement, that's going to bring a lot of eyeballs and adoption to Chili's. And the way that Chili's works is if you want to buy these fan tokens, you actually have to buy Chili's first and then swap your Chili's for the fan token. Um, so it should stimulate demand, it should stimulate activity, and it should stimulate a narrative, which is everything you look for in crypto. And I think like this is something I, you know, when I look at these trades, you, you look at the, the alt ETH ratio and CHZ ETH has pulled had pulled back a lot. It had a big run, then it pulled back a lot. And so I felt better that it was kind of more washed out going into the event. So last few days we we've been we had been accumulating some. Um, that's yeah, go ahead. 
and then you know that the 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 thesis would just be as you go towards the event, you know, there should be um, if if there's going to be an imbalance in flows, it's more likely to be to buy than sell. And so hopefully, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that you look for. But like, look, it may not be like there's no assurance of anything. Like if the market nukes, all all alt ETH pairs are going to are going to go down. Um, so there's no guarantees. But it's, a, it's a, it, I thought it was good enough risk reward that we would put on a small position. Yeah, like that's one interesting thing about uh, your fund, right? Is that you guys take uh, you you're, you you have like these broad theses, but then you also do short term trades. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at the short term trades, like how mm -hmm. do you identify these? What's your kind of process for that? Yeah, I mean, like we do take longer term views. Like like our ETH BTC is like a very thesis driven long term structural position, right? It's like just gonna mm -hmm. be there for a long time. Um, and then we do also do some short term things. Um, I think you just, you know, you, you have a limited universe. It's like the top 200 tokens is the only place that has enough liquidity, right? So you kind of know your universe and then you just screen, you just screen that stuff for actionable catalysts. Um, and you're going to see tons of them. And then that, you know, that's my job is like, look through 20 ideas and figure out which one's actually worth doing and the 19 that aren't. Right. And then when you're logging these, are you, like you mentioned, you're looking at uh, chilies versus ETH. Are you actually doing a pair trade or are you just long chilies? Yeah, no, usually we do. Um, I mean, I wouldn't, it's not like, I mean, it is a like, so we have like, a, we'll have like an exposure target. And if we want to put on chilies, we will sell something to create room for chilies. We're not just going to add chilies um, outright and, and change our exposure target. So, so we do treat right. them as pairs. Gotcha. Okay. And then as far as like longer term, uh, besides ETH, are there any L1s that you like? I mean, BNB is one that I think is interesting and we do have a BNB position. Um, for me, it's all about flows, right? And like, those are the only two that have structural demand flows. Um, and so those are the only two that I really think are interesting. Gotcha. I mean, that doesn't mean that I don't think others can succeed for utility, but I just don't think the other tokens will do well over the long term, or certainly not as well. In my right. Opinion. I'm not super familiar with BNB. Uh, so they're deflationary too. Obviously, I know the token, but I mean, is there deflationary yeah. mechanics? Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting one because, you know, most people actually aren't that familiar with it, which is another thing that I like about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they actually have no supply because they all their, all their validators are private. Um, and so they have no BNB issuance and yeah, I mean, like, look, BNB is not going to be a decentralized store of value. Like, let's be honest, like, that's not what it is, but can it be a deflationary L1? Yes, it, it is. So they have no supply and then they actually have fairly significant fees that get spent every day and it's just all burned. Right. So you just have whatever it's like $500,000 a day that just gets bought on the market every day and nothing gets sold. So you just have like 500k of inflows every day and no outflows which is gotcha. a pretty good dynamic for the token, which is why if you look at something like BNB BTC, it's up only even through a bear market. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, BNB, yeah, like you said earlier, the BNB BTC pair is just, it's just literally up yeah. only. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's tokenomics 101. It's like, yeah. uh, BTC gets sold every day. BNB gets bought every day. This is what the chart looks like. What about, um, do you like any of the, obviously we just had like Aptos launch, Solana, any of those that are kind of in their own lane? Um, not outside of like short-term catalyst driven trades. Okay. Like not structurally. 
And Aptos is one, like, I'm not trying to, like, I'm not trying to like, pick on anything or anything, but generally, I, I won't even make an Aptos comment. I'll just say generally, like when these tokens launch with extremely low circulating supply to FTV ratios, and then all the FTV unlocks, like it's generally very, 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 very negative EV to hold through that unlock period. Yeah. Um, and so if I were to look at something like that, it would be from the short side. Gotcha. Okay. So nothing, no other O1s. No, what about any of the EVM? I mean, there's other like trades that? I like, but they're not O1s. I mean, personally, I think, uh, and I do unfortunately have to run in a couple minutes. Um, okay, no problem. But um, the other trades I like, but what I'd say is the L1 space is hard. Um, I like Ethan BNB, but outside that, it's hard. The app layer space is also hard because I think a lot of the moats are very questionable. But if you can if you can get an app that somehow develops a sustainable moat, I think there's a lot of potential for, for something like that. And same goes for these you know infrastructure layer tokens. So any non-L1 token that generates real revenue and generates a moat, I'd be extremely bullish on. Got you. So last question then would be on the app layer. Any tokens you like in that area? Um, I know I've seen you any, talk about like GMX, but I don't know if that's just a yeah, trade. Not, or... not, not anything I'm high enough conviction on to talk about. Got you. Okay. Well, this has been great. I'll let you go. Uh, thanks so All much right. for coming on. If people thanks want so to much. find really you, appreciate... where yeah, can they find you? If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter, um, Northrock LP, and then northrockdigital.com. We have a website up. Perfect. I'll put links for that. Thanks so much, man. Have a good one. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me.